God is worthy to be praised. Amen? Amen. What a glorious thing. We get, we get to praise the living God who made the heavens and the earth. We get to gather and watch God work in our midst. And we get to open God's word and hear him speak. Because when the word speaks, God speaks. Amen. Amen? So turn, if you would, to Acts chapter 12. Acts chapter 12. Y'all know I could never get tired of singing that song, right? Behold our God. <laughs> you already know. I feel like God wants to beat back some darkness today with his word. And as Leslie would put it, though she's not here, punch the devil in the nose. Amen. That's what we want to do today is punch the devil in the nose with the word of God. Let's come before the Lord and pray. Father God, we thank you for your faithfulness. We thank you for your grace and your goodness and your love and your favor. Lord, you, you are worthy to be praised. You're worthy, you're worthy to behold, Lord, and to be in awe of. And nothing can compare to you. And Father, when we experience weeks like this past week where... Really hard things touch very close to home. And we're looking for hope. Lord, there's, there's no better place to turn than you. The sovereign God who overcomes the opposition of man and overcomes the darkness of the evil one and even can overcome the darkness in our own lives. And we thank you, Lord, that you are faithful. We pray that you would open our hearts now that as we prepare to get into your word, Lord, that we would hear a better word than the one I prepared. I pray, Father, that you would tailor a message for each and every heart. You know the unique needs in this congregation. You know the unique need of every heart in this room. And I pray, Father, that you would move in power and that this communion Sunday would mark the day that darkness got beat back a little bit more in the kingdom today. And, and Father, we pray that the kingdom of Christ would reign sovereign in this world and that you would spread the fame of your name among the nations. So we pray, help us now in Jesus' name. Amen. So as I was thinking about what to preach this week, my heart just kind of gravitated naturally towards Acts 12 because Acts 12 is where in the book of Acts you kind of have a pivot going on and all through the first 12 chapters of Acts you see the church preaching the gospel. Jesus said the Holy Spirit's going to fall on you and you're going to be empowered to be bold witnesses in Jerusalem and Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. And then they go out and do it, right? They go out and they're preaching the gospel. And all of a sudden, Stephen gets martyred. And it says his face shined like an angel. And he preached the gospel. And his Jewish audience was so upset that they picked up stones. They gnashed their teeth and they ran at him and threw stones and killed him. Right there on the spot. And then you see a man named Saul. 
who's breathing murderous threats against the church and dragging Christians and throwing them into jail. And you're like, the gospel's being preached, but Christians are being persecuted. Stephen's been killed. Then all of a sudden, what's God do? Knocks Paul or Saul off his horse, and he becomes the Apostle Paul and starts preaching the gospel. And as the church scatters from persecution, the gospel advances. And then we get to chapter 12, and we start realizing, like, God has a purpose for suffering and persecution and hard things. And when evil looks like it's having its day in the world, watch out. God is on the move. Amen. Amen. And that's when the gospel shines the brightest. So you might come in here today with just like a heart that's just broken. Rightly so over things that have transpired in our own city. Things going on in the nation. Dark times. And the church is no longer seen as this bastion of truth but as an enemy of what's called the right side of history, right? What do we do in the midst of that? Well, Acts chapter 12 has a word for us, and it reminds us that God's in the business of overcoming the opposition of proud-hearted rebellion against him. He's in the business of doing spiritual jujitsu on Satan when he looks like he's having his day in this world. And we're just ripe. We're ripe for revival in this day and age, right? We're longing for it. We're praying for it as a church. And we get to Acts chapter 12, and we start realizing, like, evangelism and opposition go together. Proclamation and persecution go together. Because the devil's not going to mess with the church That isn't preaching the gospel. And the devil's not going to mess with you if you're not about the gospel. You're just going to be asleep, snoozing peacefully when God is working in the world. And I hope today is not only an encouragement to persevere and to know God is with us and God is working his purposes out, but also a wake-up call that the church would be vigilant And realize it's not immune to suffering and difficulty. So let's look, verse 1, and we'll take a look at the first four verses, and then I'll kind of set up what's going on, and we'll just launch out and get to it. About that time, Herod the king laid violent hands on some who belong to the church. He killed James, the brother of John, with the sword, And when he saw that it pleased the Jews, he proceeded to arrest Peter also. And this was during the days of the unleavened bread, which was the feast of Passover. And when he had seized him, he put him in prison and delivering him over to four squads of soldiers to guard him, intending after the Passover to bring him out to the people. So we see the first thing we see from this passage, right, is that opposition will come. To the church. It's not if it, right? It's not if, but it's when. Opposition will come to a faithful church that preaches the gospel. And that's what we see here. At that time, Herod, 
the king laid violent hands on some that belonged to the church. Now, you've got to know something about Herod, right? This is Herod Agrippa I, who would have been the grandson of Herod the Great, who, if you remember at the beginning of the Gospels, is the one who is hunting down the infant Jesus and slaughtering all the babes of Bethlehem. This guy was ruthless. He was a puppet king that Rome had set up. He had a little bit of Jewish blood. He was an Edomite, like a descendant of Esau would be kind of a direct line there. And so this king was, was set up to keep the peace. And so it, it was something that this king would want everything to be kind of like cool in the area so that Rome didn't have all eyes on Jerusalem. And all of a sudden there's an uprising and he loses his authority and power. So you can see in this text, it pleases Herod Agrippa, the grandson, who, who learned a few things from his grandpa, right? It pleased him to start persecuting the church because he saw that it curried favor with the Jews. And so as soon as he sees James uh, being executed or he executes James, what happens is that people get a little bit happy about that. And so he says, oh, we'll arrest Peter. And the best way to destroy a movement is to attack the leaders. And so that's exactly what we see going on here with Herod. And he was the kind of man that was a man-fearer, and he made decisions based on what would preserve his power and prominence in the region. He was a proud-hearted man. He was a man who feared losing power, and so anything he could do to retain that authority is the way he would make political decisions to govern Jerusalem and Judea. And this guy has a pedigree of a long line of persecutors, right? Herod Antipas was also uh, his uncle, and he would be the one who would try Jesus and send him back over to Pilate. Right? He would be the one that would behead John the Baptist. So this is like a crew of guys. These Herods were, were, were nasty dudes. So you look at the scoreboard right now as we read those first four verses. And you're thinking, violent, visceral, life-threatening attacks on the church. James is killed by the sword. Execution, one of the inner three of Jesus' inner circle. And then Peter is arrested and thrown into jail. Scoreboard, it looks like Satan's winning, right? If you just took a snapshot, and maybe the church was tempted at that moment to lose heart. Beloved, never... Look at one sliver of a moment in your history or in your situation and judge what God is doing by a dark moment in history. If you looked at the cross, you would not have thought glory was coming out of that. You would not have thought the redemption of mankind was coming out of that. You would not have thought that the explosion of Christianity would come from that dark Friday. But we call it Good Friday because God 
was up to something good. And God is up to something now. God's going to show us by the time this is all through, right, that Herod is no king at all. That Herod's like a little bug he could flick. And Herod looks like he's winning now, but by the end of it, God will execute Herod. He might permit that one of his apostles be martyred for the name, but God had a purpose in it all. And lest the church get discouraged, Peter, his story is not done yet. Neither was James. He entered glory. So whether it's in life or in death, God will deliver his people in glorious ways. And that's what I want you to see in this passage. Suffering might come. There's no guarantees it won't come. In fact, the Apostle Paul said it's through many tribulations that we enter the kingdom of God. So you think, like, man, hard things are happening to me. Difficulties. I'm living the Christian life. I'm trying to be faithful. James was faithful, right? Peter was faithful. But it's through the tribulations that we enter the kingdom. And God is right there with us. And when that jujitsu happens, right? Jiu-jitsu is when you use your opponent's force against him and you flip him, right? That's what happens, right? When, when the devil comes out the church, God's like, bow, right? By the time it's over. So we're going to see that as this chapter unfolds. So lest you lose heart, right? That's what Jesus promised. John 16, he said, I've said these things to you that in me you may have peace. In a troubled world, you might have peace. Where mass shootings happen like every other week. You might have peace in him. In the world you will have tribulation. But take heart, Jesus says, I have overcome the world. Do you know that kind of peace in your heart? That even when the world around you is just like, seems like it's crumbling. There's something holding you. There's someone holding you. It's Jesus. Be of good cheer. I have overcome the world. Who are those who overcome the world? But those who believe in the Son of God. That Jesus is the Son of God. Those are the ones who overcome. The Bible says. I'm reminded of Paul saying to live is Christ and to die is gain. Do we believe that's true? Right? Like, to die is gain. James, enter glory. Stephen, enter glory. Get a standing ovation from King Jesus as they stoned him. And be a pivotal instrument in the hand of the Lord to convert the, the Apostle Paul who was Saul. And you just made the greatest missionary in Christian history through your witness and faithful martyrdom. Behold the kind of jujitsu God does in this world. So what is the church to do? That's the second thing we see in this passage. The church, you know, doesn't just kind of cower and do nothing. The church earnestly prays to the Lord. That's the second thing we see. Look at verse 5. So 
Peter was kept in prison, but earnest prayer for him was made to God by the church. So, so think about this. It, Peter's kept in prison, right? That's the one side of it. And he's guarded by four squads of guards. All right? Herod's a little bit nervous because Peter was in prison like a couple chapters earlier and an angel breaks him out. So he's a little squirrely because this Peter guy keeps getting let out of prison. So he's like, let's do some maximum security prison. And the church does what the church can do. It prays. The church is not mighty in itself. It's mighty in God. And when we drop to our knees, we're never more powerful and we're never more of a threat to the kingdom of darkness. And you'll notice that earnest prayer for him, verse 5, was made to God by the church, the ecclesia, the gathered believers. You talk about a promotion for Wednesday night prayer, corporate prayer, right? Like, like the church, the first century church, they just like had to live and breathe corporate prayer. Because you never knew when you were going to get thrown into prison. You never knew when you were going to get pummeled by somebody because you were preaching the gospel. And there was a sense of sobriety and seriousness. Like, this is life and death. We better be on our knees pleading with God. Grant power and grace to move gospel advancement in this world. We know we're fighting a real devil. We know that there's real spiritual darkness out there and that people are totally blind without God in this world. They're totally shackled. They're like Peter who was in prison, right? Bound up, unable to escape. That's what sin does to us. Now, Peter's not in there for that reason. But the, the world out there who doesn't know Jesus is perishing in darkness. And the reality of the church here is that they made earnest prayer for him to God. And that word earnest means that there was an intensity to it. There was a fervency. There was a frequency. There was a continualness to this prayer. They were just like knocking on the gates of heaven. And you think about it. When you see darkness around you, right? It's really easy to just kind of complain about what's going on in the world. Man, the world is being worldly, right? Bummer. This is awful. But the New Testament church prayed earnestly to God as a corporate body of believers. And they were just pleading. They saw Peter in jail and he's totally hopeless. But for them, they know just a few chapters earlier, God sent an angel. Now, God doesn't always deliver in those miraculous ways. Sometimes people are martyred. Jesus went to a cross. James was beheaded by the sword. Stephen was stoned. Every one of the disciples would one day face martyrdom except the Apostle John who would be banished to an island to be all by himself. 
So every one of them knew and tasted intense persecution. But there was just like a, there was a wide awakeness to the reality that they had to plead with the Lord on behalf of gospel work in the world. So when the church sees the world growing darker, the church begins to drop to its knees. And a day without prayer is a day without blessing. And a life without prayer is a life without power. So if you want power to be able to deal with the darkness in your life and the darkness in this world and the reality that you have a real enemy in Satan who never sleeps or slumbers, who is tirelessly, tirelessly at work to undo any strides you make towards God. That's why things like prayer meetings on Wednesday seem difficult to get to, right? It's easier to watch TV than to get on our knees. But this is like a wake-up call, right? Like this is like the church saw the necessity of corporate gathering to pray and to just come before the throne of grace with boldness and say, we are about the kingdom of God advancing in this world. And we're going to beat back darkness on our knees. And you can't pray as a church unless you gather as a church. Verse 12 shows us that. We'll get up to it in a second, but just look at it for a second. When Peter realized what was going on, he went to the house of Mary, the mother of John, whose other name was Mark, where many were gathered together and they were praying. So there's this house church, and it was a pretty big house, and the church was gathered together just pleading on behalf of Peter. Lord, do something. Save him. Please. And they were pleading together, united before the throne room of heaven. And we don't want to get gimmicky where we've got to like dress up prayer, prayer night, right? Dress it up. We'll have all these little exciting things that we're doing instead of just like the basic reality of like the people of God coming to hear God's word and pray together. That's glorious, right? That's what's happening here. And that's what flips the world upside down. You want to flip Smithfield on its ear? Come before the throne of grace as a gathered body of believers and watch what God does. I love seeing things happen in our prayer meetings where it's like we're praying for somebody to get saved and then they get saved or we're praying for divine appointments and then all of a sudden, lo and behold, we get a divine appointment and we're sharing testimonies about what happened last week. That's the kind of stuff that goes on Supernatural things as the people of God pray and they gather and they seek the Lord. So, Peter's in maximum security prison. We've seen opposition is coming. We know the church makes earnest prayer unto the Lord. And then thirdly, God hooks it up, right? God intervenes. God miraculously intervenes in verse 6, if you'll look at it. Now... When Herod was about to bring him out on that very night, Peter was sleeping between two soldiers bound with two chains and sentries before the door were guarding the prison. Now, I read that and I'm like, Herod is paranoid, right? He's got as many people watching Peter as possible. 
I am not letting this guy get away again. And then what happens, right? You can't keep him, Herod. You can't keep him. If God doesn't want you to have him here, you're not going to have him. It doesn't matter how many guards you throw up in that room. God will prevail. So verse 7, and behold, an angel of the Lord stood next to him. And a light shone in the cell. And he struck Peter on the side and woke him up saying, get up quickly. And the chains fell off his hands. I love it. And the angel said to him, dress yourself and put on your sandals. And he did so. And he said to him, wrap your cloak around you and follow me. And he went out and followed him. And he did not know that what was being done to him by the angel was real. But he thought he was seeing a vision. And when they had passed the first and the second guard, they came to the iron gate leading into the city. And it opened for them of its own accord. It's like Jedi force, right? Boom, it's open. And they went out and went along the street, and immediately the angel left him. And when Peter came to himself, he said, Now I am sure that the Lord sent his angel and rescued me from the hand of Herod and all that the Jewish people were expecting. I mean, you can't, like, like <laughs> this is how God does stuff, right? You, you, Herod is breathing the kind of threats against the church that does strike fear into the heart, right? If you knew there was a tyrant walking around Smithfield or Henry County who was going to kill Christians anytime he found them, you'd be a little concerned. But the people of God began to pray, and then all of a sudden, God sends an angel. And often through the book of Acts, God will use angels to do work like this, miraculous work. And the angel of the Lord shows up. And Peter is like, the text does, does so much to show you that Peter's just kind of like, it's just happening to him, right? He's sleeping, which I love, right? He's sleeping in his cell. He's just chilling. You're about to be executed. And he's like, God's got me. To live is Christ, to die is gain. I'm going to either enter glory with my Lord tomorrow, or he's going to deliver me like he did last time. I'll go to bed, right? And I love like a couple chapters later, so Peter's sleeping, and then... Paul and Silas get thrown into a Philippian jail in the middle of a dungeon. It's midnight, and they're like, let's have a praise and worship service. And they start singing praises to God, and then boom, God opens the, the, that prison up, right? Seeing a pattern? You can't keep the work of God and the gospel of God bound. You might be able to bind some of the preachers. You might be able to bind some of the Christians but the gospel will not be bound. And God's purposes will advance. And he will intervene when the people of God pray. And it's powerful. And the, the, the text is stressing the supernatural nature of it, right? Like all through, an angel, right, is doing this work. Doors are opening by themselves, right? Right? And then all of a sudden, verse 11 reminds us that Peter comes to himself because he was kind of like in this sleepy trance. And he comes to himself and he says, now I'm certain. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> now I'm certain that the Lord had sent his angel and rescued me from the hand of Herod and from all that the Jewish people were expecting. Now, 
you're either in the hand of Herod or in the hand of the Lord, right? You're either in the hand of the, 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 the world of men. You're either going to put all your hope and all your eggs in that basket, right? And you're just going to rest there. Or you're going to be in the hand of the Lord. And even if you're in the hand of men through persecution, God is able to get you out of the hand of the most fierce tyrants. So what are you facing? Like, what are you going through right now that's too hard for the Lord to deal with? There's nothing too hard for the Lord. And the Lord is a master weaver in taking the dark threads of your life and using it for glorious good. And you might not be able to tell in the moment. Why do I have this diagnosis? Why am I having this strife going on in my soul? Why do things keep happening to me? I'm just so tired of it. You got to remember who sent the angel. You got to remember the, the one who's in control. Everything you're going through is father filtered, and he would not permit it if it weren't for his good purposes. So I just want to remind you, like, God cares about you, and he's working in hard things, even when you can't see it. And get this. God is in the business of answering prayers even when your faith is weak. So you're like, I can't come to a Wednesday night or I can't pray. I, I, I just, I, I never, I, I ask and, and I don't have enough faith. I can't come. All right. I'm just, I'm concerned about coming and praying publicly. I don't know about that. That's a little scary. And we're reminded in this passage as the, the church gathers, watch what God does in answer to weak faith. Look at this, verse, 13, or verse 12. When Peter realizes this, that he's standing outside the prison, he went to the house of Mary, who's the mother of John Mark, right? And there were many gathered together, and they're praying. And when he knocks at the door of the gateway, a servant girl named Rhoda came to answer, and recognizing Peter's voice, in her joy, she did not open the gate, but ran and reported that Peter was standing at the gate. you got to imagine this. Like, step inside this for a second. Peter gets to the prayer meeting where they're praying for him to be released. And the servant girl opens the door. And she's so elated and so filled with joy, she leaves him standing at the door, runs over to the prayer meeting. She's like, guys, guys, Peter is here. Peter is here. Our prayers have been answered. They're like, they're like, Rhoda, <laughs> Rhoda, calm down, calm down. We know it's not Peter. Okay, we're praying for Peter. Can you stop bothering us? We're in a prayer meeting, okay? And, and, and she's like, no, she's so insistent. Look at verse uh, 15. They said to her, you're out of your mind. But she kept insisting that it was so. And they kept saying, it's his angel. So now they got to kind of like double down and be like, all right, I guess it's his guardian angel or something. We'll give you that. She's so excited, you know, but just mature a little bit. Come on over to the prayer meeting. We'll keep going. And she's like, no. And then Peter keeps knocking, right? So as we see this, like now Peter's standing at the door. Verse 16, Peter continued knocking. And when they opened, they saw him and were amazed. So get this, they're praying for Peter's deliverance. God delivers him, and then they don't believe it. And they have to be convinced by Peter pounding outside at the door, right? 
Man, that's so like us, right? Have you ever been praying for something and you're like, I've been praying for this, but I don't really believe it. I don't really believe that God will do it. I'm going to pray for it, of course, but I don't believe God could save this person. I remember praying for my grandpa, and he was just really hardened, you know, Jewish man. And I'm just like, I'm like, Lord, I just pray you would save him, but he's too hard. You know, like that's just, that's, that's a project. That's going to take some time, you know. And often the Lord will take our feeble prayers and our weak faith prayers, and he'll move mountains with it because he likes to blow your mind. And when you actually get on your knees and you're like, I'm just going to like, I'm going to depend on God for a minute, right? I'm not going to act like I've got it all together, and I'm just going to come, and I'm going to be a part of the people of God crying out in prayer, and I'm going to depend on the Lord. And then God's like, ooh, I see a little bit of faith there. I see somebody who's got a little bit of faith. Watch this. Boom. Angel, Peter, gone. Herod, bummed out. Ultimately, God's purpose is being worked out in triumphing over the opposition of sinful man. That's how amazing and good God is. But I wonder if we get so discouraged about prayer because we feel like I've got to be this great prayer warrior. I've got to be like on my knees three hours a day or nothing's getting done in the kingdom. And this passage is here to remind you, even the bold church that loved prayer and that majored on prayer needed encouragement that God would take even small faith and bless it. So be encouraged by that. And remember, right, this is how this transaction is happening. Persecution and suffering come. The church falls to its knees and prays. God intervenes on behalf of his people. And so when we cry out, he hears. The last thing we see in this passage, that I love it. I love this. God knows how to humble a proud heart. He just, he knows how to humble a proud heart. Right? Look at this in verse 18. It starts here, right? There's stages to the humbling. Now, when day came, there was no little disturbance among the soldiers over what had become of Peter. And Herod searched for him and did not find him. And he examined the sentries and ordered that they should be put to death. And then he went down from Judea and Caesarea and spent time there. So check this out. Herod sees that even though he puts Peter in maximum security prison, Peter's gone. He's upset. Of course the guards are scared, right? Herod's going to find out that Peter is gone and that's it, right? And Herod's so mad and so furious because he looks foolish. The Jewish people were expecting Peter to be executed and now he's gone. And this movement is gaining encouragement. He thought he had him on the ropes. And God was up to something in the midst of it. And now he's being humbled and he's got to kill somebody, right? It's not my fault, Herod said. Let's kill the guards. That's... That's whose fault it was. So he kills the guards, but he loses face among the people. And God begins to humble this proud-hearted king bit by bit. It's like taking a little axe to a tree. Bap, 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 bap. And all of a sudden, this proud-hearted king begins to get cut down. God resists the proud heart, but he gives grace to the humble. 
That's what God's word says. He resists the proud-hearted man, but gives grace to the humble. He, the, the, the one who exalts himself, like Herod did, with pomp and circumstance, is ultimately humbled by God. And the one who humbles himself before God gets exalted. That's what Jesus teaches all through Scripture. So look at it in verse 20. We're going to see pomp and circumstance, and we're going to see God breaking in to humble a blaspheming king. Now, Herod was angry with the people of Tyre and Sidon, and they came to him with one accord, and having persuaded Blastus, the king's chamberlain, they asked for peace, because their country depended on the king's country for food. And on an appointed day, Herod put on his royal robes, took his seat upon the throne, and delivered an oration to them. And the people began shouting. you got to hear them repeating this, okay? The voice of God and not a man. The voice of God and not a man. And immediately, the angel of the Lord struck him down because he did not give glory to God. And he was eaten by worms and breathed his last. The chapter opens with Herod doing violence against the church, executing one of its leaders in James. And the chapter closes with Herod being executed as a blasphemer and as a proud-hearted man who was opposing the work of God and the ways of God. And ultimately, the gospel begins to flourish and advance. And you get verse 24. This is like the crescendo, right? But the word of God increased and multiplied. When you come at the gospel, when you come at the people of God, you find out that not even the gates of Hades will prevail against the church and nothing can stop or bind the gospel of Jesus Christ. It is the power of God unto salvation for those who believe. And the gospel keeps advancing and Herod is being eaten by worms and is, is forgotten in the ash can of history. And just so you know how cool the Bible is, this account is written of by Josephus, who was a Jewish historian, and we're reminded by him that Herod had this parade and wanted all of this glory, and he, he arrayed himself in dazzling attire before Tyre and Sidon, and they praised him as a god, and immediately he became sick and died of terrible pains in his stomach. So whether it was worms or whether he became worm food, whatever it was, God struck him down in his tracks. And whether it's on judgment day or in the immediacy of the moment like it was for Herod, God had had enough of this king. And he would display himself as mighty over the one who had taken the life of one of his apostles and imprisoned another. 
So yes, darkness may have its day. But you don't count the scoreboard by that. By the end of it, scoreboard is <laughs> James in heaven, Peter set free, gospel advancing, churches being planted, gospel reaching around the world. Right? That's how God works. We wouldn't be in Smithfield right now talking about the gospel if God didn't do a work here and show you what some spiritual jujitsu looks like in the lives of his people. In the lives of people going through hard times and persecuted situations. So where are you at today? Are you in these hard times? Are you in these hard places? Are you heavy in your heart? I just want to tell you right now, remember that God knows how to deal with a proud heart, but he knows how to give grace to the humble. God knows how to lift up a church on its knees and lift it up and take its weak faith and say, watch me shape, watch me shape you and watch me flip the world upside down with the greatest news in all the world. So wherever you're at today, there's hope from this passage. You may have had a heavy-hearted soul this week, but remember what God does in the midst of darkness. The light shines. He beats it back with gospel truths, and Jesus is who he said he is, and that's why the church perseveres even in the midst of the most violent threats against it. Amen? Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this passage. We thank you for the hope of this passage. We're reminded afresh that we need good news in dark times. And we have a great Savior in um, Jesus who's able to deal with our sins, who's able to deal with the persecution that comes upon the church. We pray, Father, for our brothers and sisters around the world who are facing imminent threat. God, that you would break in and do a work. Lord, do jujitsu in Africa and in Muslim countries and in China and in, in these places where it seems like darkness is reigning. And Lord, wake up the sleepy church in America to get on its knees and come before the Lord in prayer and be a people committed to prayer. And I pray, God, that you would move in powerful ways. In Jesus' name, amen.